Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of the Global Shuffle Podcast. I'm your host, Derek Volibert, and I'm thrilled this week to be interviewing Tracy Collins. And actually, I'd say it's less of an interview and more of just a discussion over some wine. Uh, but I had a really nice chat with Tracy. She's a good friend and colleague here at Exonify in Waterloo, Canada. And the reason I wanted to interview her is, number one, she's gotten really into mindfulness and meditation this past year. I've gone into it a bit myself, but her at a much deeper level. So I wanted to pick her brain on that to see what tips and tricks she might have. And the second Second is she is someone that is a real evangelist around remote working and the benefits that it has. And she has some really good tips uh, for someone that might be considering to move to remote working lifestyle and also some best practices to share around how to best set that up. So on those two things, I really wanted to, to pick her brain, also hear a little more about her story. So we recorded this last Friday and releasing today as the last podcast for the year. Hope you enjoy and wish you all a very happy holiday and new year. Let's go. So welcome everyone to the Global Shuffle Podcast. I'm here drinking wine with my good friend Tracy Collins in an undisclosed location. It is Friday. It is Friday. Yeah. So welcome, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm super, super excited. Yeah. So your bio, I'm going to read it as it says on LinkedIn. Tech, adop- tech adoption expert, L&D specialist, remote work aficionado, and mindfulness evangelist. That's it. That's me in a nutshell. That's it? Like, boom. <laughs> so, t- like, but where did you grow up, first of all? So, I grew up in rural Ontario, so a really, really small town. And the small town was Chesterville, Ontario. Mm-hmm. So, eastern Ontario, about, I think, population 1,500. And I did not grow up in the town. I grew up about 15-minute drive outside of the town. So, in the deep country, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was born in Quebec before then and then moved to Ontario when I was a toddler. So that's where I spent most of my growing up in high school and then um, moved over, well, went to Ottawa for university and grad school and then uh, went overseas to kick off my career. Yeah, so I know, I mean, you and I have talked about you spent a lot of time out in Asia. So what were the steps or decisions that led you to pursue that path? So I feel like I have a lot in common with millennials who struggled with making the transition to their careers. Um, So uh, like millennials, I had some struggles um, in 2000, I'll just say early 2000s, there was a huge tech uh, bubble burst and my my, uh, contract that was lined up for when I graduated from graduate school evaporated into thin air. So I was bartending at the time and knew I didn't want to continue that. I was, you know, desperately pursuing other opportunities, uh, but it was a challenging time. And I was like, well, you know, I really end up kind of staying the course and waiting for the economy to self-correct, or I try to figure out something else to do. So one afternoon, a friend of mine had told me about opportunities teaching overseas. And so, um, you know, after spending months of sending out tons and tons of resumes and literally having zero response, I went online to daveseslcafe.com and found like a posting for a school in China and applied for the job and literally heard back within like a minute. I got a back a, a response back from their HR saying like, we'd love to talk to you. Like, when can you start? Like, it was that easy. So after that, I spent some time really thinking carefully about what country I wanted to go to and what I wanted to do and ended up um, going to South Korea, to Busan, South Korea. My my strategy at the time was that it seemed warmish because it was on the coast and I thought it would be neat to be close to the coast. So that was really the thinking process and from there it took a few months just to um, put everything in storage and make the decision and uh, sort of wrap up my life in Canada before I went overseas. And how old were you at the time? 
I was 27. So I took a long path through university. I did like a longer undergrad because I was working uh, full-time through university. Then I did sort of a, I'm going to call it a gap year, which didn't accomplish too much because I mostly just worked more and tried to figure out what I was doing. And then I uh, did my master's degree in education, so finished um, a little older and then decided to go overseas. Mm -hmm. And so when you went abroad, like a lot of people do a year abroad, let's say, was it viewed in your eyes at the time as this is a one-year experience or this is, I'm going to go abroad and never come back? Like, what was it? I think, yeah, that's a good point. I I mean, I think originally I thought, well, I'll go for a year. One year turned into four. Um, And I didn't really think about it. I think during the first year I had already moved, so I went to Pusan, South Korea for six months. Uh, liked it, but I had some um, challenges as well, some things that I didn't love about my experience. And so during Chinese New Year, I had gone to Taipei and had a really fun time. And I had a ton of friends there already from Canada that I connected with. And so I went back to Pusan and through, um, it's a long story, which I won't get into, but had some assistance from the U.S. military and was <laughs> able to get out of the country and move to Taipei. Um, so I moved to Taipei um, in the second half of the year and um, loved it and sort of, you know, from then it was the first contract and then I really wanted to teach in the university which required another year. Then I was having a great time teaching in the university so it was like extend, 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 travel, travel, travel. And then uh, during the fourth year I thought at that time I was pursuing a PhD. So um, I had been accepted to McGill and to the University of Hong Kong, decided I would maybe pivot into academia, which I ended up ultimately not pursuing, which was maybe another interesting story for another time. But um, also really wanted to be close uh, to my friends and family and my mom in particular. So I had decided to come home with the intent of that being a short-term stint and going back overseas. But I ended up ultimately staying home uh, from there. But I'd like to go back at some point. And so one of the main focuses for this conversation I wanted to have is around mindfulness too, which you and I talk about often. Did like your journey into that area? Did that start at all as part of this international experience, or more when you came back? Yeah, that it, you're absolutely right. Um, I got I started becoming really interested in yoga in particular. So what I would say like uh, yoga is the physical exercise practice that's somewhat common in North America as well. Um, so while I was abroad, I did some yoga retreats uh, in Thailand and. Um, I became really interested in spirituality in a way. So one book that was really, really transformational for me was a book called Autobiography of a Yogi, which was written probably in the 60s or 70s. So Paramahansa Yogananda was one of the first um, yogis who came from India and um, to California in the 60s and normalized yoga. Now his practice was really around Kriya Yoga, which is about um, sort of more of a meditative focus versus the physical activity. But while I was traveling, um, I spent some time in California and went to his ashram as well. Now he's obviously since deceased. But he, so his book, uh, like, blew my mind. Like, I had no idea about the power of meditation in terms of things like we think about mindfulness and just sort of reducing stress, that type of thing, or controlling stress. But when you think about these yogis who are essentially steeped in um, long-term meditation, uh, working directly with a guru in their teens and essentially meditating for years on end, 
when you think about what what's possible by the mind like it's it's far beyond what most people can really comprehend I think mm-hmm. so you know I've talked about I, I I've gotten into meditation myself in the past year just doing 10 minutes a day let's say at the beginning of the day I know you do a lot more than that uh, what what would you describe your routine as when it comes to mindfulness or meditation so I've been meditating daily for a year so in the new year it'll be about a year um, so my practice is typically at night I mean I have done some morning meditations I, I just find it so much easier at bedtime to use uh, meditation as my wind down um, so I do 20 minutes of meditation timed meditation so I just use um, a timer through the insight timer app so the insight timer app you know there's headspace there's a bunch of other apps that are available but generally they'll have two features or functions one is guided meditation and then the other is timed so it's just you could use a timer on your phone but these have sort of the more meditation focused sounds so it's a little bit more soothing so I do 20 minutes a day of um, timed meditation but I also do guided meditation right now I'm doing the MBSR which is a mindfulness based stress reduction program it's an eight-week program uh, that's available online you can pay for it so that uh, that program was originally from uh, John Kabat-Zinn who's sort of the uh, founder I think he's like from um, a big university in Massachusetts not MIT but like a, a large institution really studying the effects of meditation on pain reduction and um, you know he's sort of a granddaddy of meditation in the US so to speak from the 60s and um, so in that course we're exploring different types of meditation as well so we do I do now body scans um, guided some guided meditations there's one called the raisin meditation which is more about mindfulness while eating um, all kinds of things so I'm doing I'm sticking to my 20 days 20 minutes per day but layering in other elements and trying to evolve my practice over time so you'll do the do you do the 20 minutes of the like what, Insight Timer app and this, or they replace each other, or how does it work? Well, right now, the where I'm at, like you have to do 20 minutes of sitting meditation, as it's called, so it, it pairs perfectly with what I'm, my, my existing practice, so it's not new to mm-hmm. me, I've already been doing it. Um, and if I'm doing a body scan, so there's a guided body scan meditation that comes with the um, program that I'm doing. The program that I'm doing is, is free, by the way, it's through the Palouse, Palouse Institute. And uh, it's no cost. You can just download the resources and the audio files and follow along. So I would do one or the other. So the the body scans when I was doing them are uh, 24 minutes or 32 minutes. So I would do those uh, on the prescribed days, and then other days I'll do my regular 20-minute uh, practice. So the areas you talked about there were stress reduction, pain. Are those the two focuses you have for your practice then? Uh, well, I don't have chronic pain, okay. um, but I do it mostly for stress reduction. Um, well, actually, initially, um, when I really started my daily practice, it was in response to a lot of the chaos, uh, sort of in the political arena from last year. I was having a really tough time sort of making sense of the divisiveness in the world, uh, what was happening in social media, and had a kind of epiphany realizing you know I feel like there was a lot of attacking of parties on on social media people blaming each other and I realized you know what can I do to contribute to a better world like it's like I, I didn't I couldn't figure out how I could um, control you know control my circumstances better and I realized you know I, I cannot control the behavior of others but what I can do is contribute to a higher level 
of, of consciousness quality, the quality of my consciousness. So indirectly, as you improve your consciousness or you improve yourself, if, if you want to use the word like a simpler analogy, when you become a better version of yourself, whatever better means, then your experience with the world, your interactions with the world uh, change dramatically. So instead of seeing all the friction and the tension, you um, see more of the, maybe the beauty or the small moments or um, you're more uh, connected to maybe a, a global view of consciousness or more connected to people who have similar values uh, towards peace and harmony that you do. So that was really the initial uh, kind of key motivator for me and mindfulness has become secondary I'd say. So in the last few months I've become super interested in mindfulness. Uh, one area that I'm really interested in is um, conscious consumption or mindful consumption or capitalism however you want to look at it. So it's it's about being really conscientious about the things that you purchase. I think at Christmas in particular there's a tendency for people to get sucked into the shopping vortex, the consumption vortex mm -hmm. of just buying stuff for the sake of it. Um, so, you know, making small pivots in my behavior. For example, I buy, I don't buy things, I buy experiences. So I tend to focus more on experience-based gifts or spending time with people. I've also made a lot of changes in my um, uh, home behaviors. So uh, really trying to focus on reducing my environmental impact, uh, those kinds of things by using um, different kinds of products that are more sustainable versus, um, you know, some of the mainstream mm -hmm. products. So again, that aligns to this kind of mindful um, consumption or mindful capitalism. We can control our destiny through the purchasing decisions that we make is, is one of my beliefs. Well, you and I both watched the Netflix documentary Minimalism just on this where there's the two gentlemen going around and like basically spreading the word of how they, they live on very, very minimal possessions and how that doesn't define their own happiness. Um, and I, I find that interesting during this period as well. You know, in the holiday season, you feel the pressure often to buy so many gifts and you have to have tough conversations sometimes to change Maybe your family's opinion, okay, are we going to buy gifts for each other? Do we really need that? Or can we do an experience together? Or can we do a secret Santa where we just get one meaningful gift? You know, try, not feeling it as, a, as an obligation, let's say, but something meaningful if it is done. Well, I think, too, I mean, you've just touched on something important, which is um, even the, the pursuing of the gift, like so many times, I don't know if, if people recognize this, but a gift that you think is thoughtful, um, the receiver of the gift may or may not agree. And um, like the vast majority of gifts end up in, in essentially landfill anyway, right? Like, so I, I get a little annoyed by these kind of um, gag gift things because most of those gag gifts end up in, in landfill. All the wrapping paper, all of the stuff that goes, the packaging, all of that kind of stuff is to a large degree completely wasted. Not to mention the money that you've invested. You, you're literally, I use the analogy, taking your money and setting it on fire, right? So, you know, I, I think those are great conversations to have with people, to have honest conversations and communications to say, is this really who we are as a family? Like, would it, wouldn't it be better to focus on things like time together or experiences or a nice meal? Um, I think you just get so much more value out of those. And back to the meditation point for a second. So I'm curious. So you, it's interesting. I didn't know that you just started this last year around this time. We only met earlier this year. And my impression has always been that you're someone that's incredibly calm. 
right? I haven't seen you ever really get agitated or upset with something. And maybe that's just the situations we've been in together. But would you say that that's, that's attributed more your personality or also to, to the meditation side? <laughs> oh, my God. That is one, that is 200% meditation. So, <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, my gosh, if I think back to um, growing up, like, I would describe myself as an extremely anxious person like excessively anxious and it's funny because um it's difficult to know when you are living an anxious existence when that's all you've known you don't know that you're anxious until you start to notice other people who appear less anxious than you and then you start kind of saying gee there's a difference between that person and me what is it so it wasn't until fairly recently, like in the last, let's say, three to five years, where I really started to understand that anxiety is, is, has just followed me my whole life. And meditation is the secret sauce to this facade that you have. I mean, that's really, that's really impressive to me that, that you would regard me as someone who's like calm and, and whatever, because I, I feel like historically I've really struggled. Mm with um, kind of keeping my anxiety at bay, mm. so to speak. And um, so clearly it's working, but I think that's probably the biggest net benefit is just controlling, always being calm in situations. It's the largest contributor that I would say to my current state of happiness, more so than any of the other sort of remedies that we typically prescribe in society, things like exercise and diet and quality relationships, those types of things. Like I, I feel like meditation really is the thing that can transform the world more wow. so than any other thing. Yeah. Well, that, that's a big statement, I would say. But I will agree. I think the biggest thing I've found is, to me, it brings my awareness to the present moment. Often I am, you know, working, I work very quickly for anyone that knows it's me very, very fast in everything I do. And it does help me slow down, I find, and become more conscious throughout the day because whenever something happens, we become emotionally hijacked in the moment. And if we respond during that moment of being hijacked, we're going to respond maybe with our emotions as opposed to our rational self. And meditation isn't going to stop that, but at least it helps create awareness of, okay, I'm feeling charged right now. Maybe I shouldn't respond to this customer right away or maybe I shouldn't respond to this person until you know I've had an opportunity to, to reflect on this so I do find it helps with that but you also have taken it to another level too and going to some of these meditation retreats and I have not gone to that level so how many retreats have you been to uh, so like I mentioned earlier I went to a few yoga retreats which mm -hmm. were way out of my league at the time that's okay. just a, an amusing story for another time but basically imagine going to a yoga retreat thinking that it's sort of like a fun fitness retreat and finding out that there are like diehard yogis from around the world who do a daily practice and don't want to be your friend they want to go in and do yoga all day and you have no idea what you've walked into so that was an interesting experience um, from when I was living abroad but more recently in terms of meditation specifically um, as you know, I, I think as I'm going to call it sort of a lingering hangover from a lot of the side effects from the political climate uh, from last year, I was really struggling to kind of get back to who I was. I sort of lost my mojo, so to speak. And um, so I was researching retreats, meditation retreats, because it wasn't a vacation that I needed. I really just wanted to disconnect and 
and um, reflect in a different way. And so I found a retreat center in Wolf Island. So it's just a ferry ride across from Kingston called Shanti. And um, so this was a, the first retreat I did was a five-day silent meditation retreat focused on heart center or love or loving kindness, that type of thing. And um, a lot of people who know me because I'm an extrovert are like, you went to a silent meditation retreat for five days. I loved the silence in particular. I mean, I, I feel like when you get together with a bunch of people that you don't know, there's a lot of social expectation around small talk and, you know, who are you and where are you from and why are you here? And there's that continuous, you know, requirement to engage and be on and whatever. So I found it really nice just to, you know, silence was, you, you, you went to the retreat, you had your intro session, and then it was silence for five days. So you could actually enjoy, like you're talking about the mindfulness and the presence, sense of presence, enjoy the environment, enjoy the meals to a different degree. Um, this, the, the views from Wolf Island like are some of the best I've seen in the world. Like this retreat is spectacular. The quality and the caliber of the teaching, the staff, the center itself are, are really, really amazing. So the first five-day session was easy for me, um, partly because you can also do a lot of the reflection so they have a really nice library you can read you can journal oh, so it's not all meditation the whole day either well it is i mean it's like 10 10 or 12 hours of meditation okay oh it's it's yeah like you get up at um i think the first gong goes off at um 6 30 you get up you meditate for usually two to three hour blocks but you'll have there's a break from after lunch i think from one to three so you can read or you can journal or you can sit outside and go swimming no talking still but you can you know have a little bit of um quality time for yourself and of course at bedtime i would often read or journal as well so that was the first meditation retreat uh in the summer and immediately i was like i need i, I have to do more of this so um um, I signed up for a shorter one, just a long weekend in the fall. So I did that. That one was incredible too. Just an absolutely incredible teacher. And uh, I'll do some more in the summer just because they shut down in the winter. They actually travel, the owners, uh, Wendy and Darren, travel to India. They spend the, their winters in India. Oh, wow. And they um, hang out with their guru, with some, some of the other teachers, etc. cetera. Uh, but I've signed up for a sort of the standard uh, Vipassana 10-day retreat in March. So that's next level. Um, it's also a silent meditation retreat based on the Vipassana style, which originates, um, it's a Buddhist tradition from India, and it's passed down generation to generation. And the most recent, I don't know if you'd call him guru or granddaddy, um, who established the practice worldwide. So if, like, if you Google Vipassana meditation, it'll take you to the, cent the main landing page and you can access a Vipassana center anywhere in the world. And the courses are free. So they're, they're donation-based um, for, for a specific reason, and that is that if you prepay for a retreat, then you have expectations going in. So this is all donation-based. Once you complete your retreat, you can... Uh, you can provide a donation if you feel like it, but there's absolutely no expectation. They're funded through other uh, means. But the Vipassana meditation retreat is 10 days of no speaking, no eye contact, no reading, no writing. Um, you bring your own sheets, your own stuff, um, and you meditate for, I think the first gong goes at 4 or 4.30 in the morning, and uh, lights out is, is at 9. There's two meals a day. 
and uh, I think you can speak if you've got issues you can speak to your instructor like they have kind of like an office hour type of uh, thing but other than that you're meditating and so it's, it's a very specific form of meditation you have to follow their methodology uh, but that's what I'm doing in in March mm -hmm. Yeah. So you and I also both were, were talking recently about Dan Harris, who wrote the book 10% Happier, and I believe has his own podcast on this now. He's a ABC News correspondent who journeyed into meditation, and he claims it makes him 10% happier. And in, it, I listened to the audiobook, and it's him actually reading it, and he, similar to you described, but in much even greater detail, his experience going into those uh, meditation retreats, which is something I would never would think to do, but it is interesting hearing about you know, the experience. and. Something I want to ask you, because I think in that book he, he describes it quite in detail, but what's your experience coming out of that, back into the real world? I think that's the, I can imagine descending into this meditative state, you know, as you go through those days, but coming out of that, I feel like it either is something that would be gradual or just boom, okay, you're back in the real world. Like, what was your experience coming out of your first one, just back into reality? Yeah, I mean, the neat thing is, is like I drove, so I, I had the luxury of, you know, just having my own car, so it's a quiet um, segue back into reality. It is jarring and it is, I mean, you see um, some of the more unsavory elements of society in some ways because you're sort of cocooned and you're sheltered and you're protected for the time when you're on retreat and coming out can sometimes be a little uh, jarring. Um, I didn't really have the, the main thing for me was not so much the integration back, but the desire for constant, like more and more and more. So my big struggle was like, I wanted, I didn't, I wanted to just sign up for another retreat. I wanted to go directly to India. I wanted to like, just, you know, take everything to the next level. Um, so I think that works for some people, but like for me, I still have my career. I still have, you know, a home to manage and things of that nature. So it's, it's not really in... Um, it's it's more of a compulsion that I had to say, okay, Tracy, it's fine that you want to do this, but you, you just have to think um, about scheduling the next event. Like you, just because you're having a really good experience with this, doesn't mean you have to go become like a monk living mm -hmm. in in uh, Tibet or or India or Thailand. You can still do these um, you know quarterly deep sessions and still get the same benefits right you don't have to drop mm -hmm. it all so I, I have a little bit of that compulsiveness sort of embedded in my personality that makes me want to jump into everything so I just have to pull that back recognize that I'm doing that pattern again and say you know you're fine Tracy you can just sign up for something research what you want to do and find your next experience we both recently got into meditation but is anyone listening that's gone in is thinking about going to the first time would you have any tips for a first time individual in that respect um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I toyed with meditation, like I said, a long, like 10, 15 years ago. But for me, I, I was just like, well, this is silly. What? Like sit and like sit in my bed or sit on a pillow and like close my eyes and focus on my breath. Like that is ridiculous. Like I've got stuff to do. And, um, but, it, but it really is that simple. You know, if you, if you sit and you breathe for 10 minutes or five minutes or two minutes and you watch your breath, um, over time, the changes are remarkable at first and you, you kind of discount them because it's not like you're saying, gee, I did this diet and I lost 10 pounds or 20 pounds or my, you know, I fit into my skinny jeans or, you know, I, I was able to see some sort of 
tangible result. This this is more of a subtle result where you notice like some of the things you, you mentioned. You feel calmer. You're in like a, a stressful situation and instead of reacting the way you traditionally do, like you're like super calm and you're like, oh yeah, like I, I can handle this, right? So it's these soft, uh, small changes that happen but are momentously like transformational. So I would say, first of all, um, just start small. Um, I do think the apps are really great. Like I think if I'd had an app, you know, 10, 15 years ago, that like the neat thing about the apps, and I mean, I only have experience with the Insight Timer, is you're also connected to a community. So leverage the community features Mm -hmm. because you are who you hang out with. And if you can connect with other people who are on the same journey with you, it makes it more meaningful, right? So just like on Facebook, you're connecting with your friends or your circle or your high school buddies. On Insight Timer, you get to know new people who are, you know, pursuing the same um, meditation journey types of things or exploring the same things. So get connected with those people. And like I have now like um, all kinds of back channel groups that I'm part of. So I have like meditation circles using Facebook Messenger. And you'd be amazed to like even just in conversation when I've mentioned that I meditate, people will also say, oh wow, you know, I've been doing the same thing. And suddenly you've got like a meditation buddy that you can talk to. It's hard when you don't have someone to share the journey with. So yeah, my two tips would be stick with it, use an app and find a posse, a tribe of people who are pursuing the same things. Five years ago I was working and I bought a book on meditation. I got 10 pages into the book and could never never do it. I, if I, I feel like if I had had one of those apps in those days, it could have, I really could have gotten into it. I, I would totally agree on that point. The, the app aspect makes it very uh, manageable. I haven't gone as much into the community aspect of it as you have, but I imagine from those retreats you build that, that network of people that you can leverage for sure. Well, I, I don't communicate with any of the people on the retreat because I don't um, know who any of them are, right? Because mm-hmm. it's a silent You don't like talk at the end, like you have lunch at the end and say, hey, who are you? Um, you can, yeah, but I mean, it's more like, hey, it was nice meeting you. Like, that's, mm-hmm. is there, it's got a kind of an anonymous vibe. Like, okay. I don't know. I still, to this day, have no idea who my bunk meets were. I had three women that I shared a room with. I don't know who they, I don't know what their names were. <laughs> I don't know anything about them, right? So mm-hmm. um, there's a certain um, anonymity, but I've, I've created my community in my community. Like, these are people that I interact with on a daily, weekly basis or people that I communicate with through um, other apps, right? So yeah. to support me and each other. But also podcasts. You mentioned the 10% Happier podcast. I listen to um, his podcast every week about and he in, interviews um sort of celebrity or quasi-famous meditators or people who have changed their lives through meditation and the stories are super inspiring like it's it's uplifting it makes you feel good so i mean just in terms of general food for the soul that can also be um, a great way to stay connected mm-hmm. the other big thing i wanted to ask you about today is your experience working remotely and this is something you you talk about a lot you evangelize some of the the lifestyle around it. How so? Let's set let's set the stage. I guess to start off, how many years have you worked remotely? Five. Five. Yeah. Okay. Five years. And describe like maybe to set some describe your average day, uh, in a sense, because you're, it is different than the traditional. I get up, I have breakfast, then I go to work, I come back, do whatever else. How do you, how do you organize the day? Let's say on a typical day, do you have a way to? 
kind of set, okay, this is when work starts and stops? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I always try to be available. It depends on your situation, but like here um, at Exonify and in my previous role, like the expectation was you're, you're going to be available for most of the core working hours. And for most people, that's like nine to five window. So um, it depends on the day, but like for me personally, like I do like to exercise first thing in the morning. I feel more energized. So I try to schedule an exercise session early. So like I'll jump over to the gym around seven or 7.30, extra, you know, do some cardio for a half hour, come home, shower, get ready, and I'm usually like ready to go by 8 or 8.30. So that's some days. The other morning routine that sometimes happens is if I do the gym later, like after work, then I'll maybe start super early. So I'll start maybe at 7, I can log in. Because I'm, I'm transitioning, I have a rapid transition, right? Like I get my coffee, I have my breakfast, and um, you know, I'm ready to go essentially. So I can log in, which allows me to, to chunk out my day differently. So what I've learned is um, like working for super long stretches, I get a bit bored. So I like to chunk out my day differently. So I might start at seven, work till noon, um, come back after lunch, work for a few hours, take a few hours in the afternoon and come back after dinner and finish my day. Mm -hmm. So it allows me to stretch my day. I'm still available for core hours. But I have that flexibility where I can add in other interesting activities. It doesn't have to be start and stop for the day. It's start, stop, start, stop. Yeah. It's more integrated. Yeah, and, if, and you know, I'm pretty in, involved in the community too, so it allows me, gives me a bit of flexibility to go to meetings or to run errands um, and then come back and finish my day. Um, so I really, I like that a lot. What would you, how would you contrast the advantages and disadvantages of the remote working lifestyle? And, and something I already think about is you obviously get much more flexibility. Uh, and if you are disciplined, I'm sure you can, you can get a lot more done in less time and you don't have as much of that. But then there's the social element, there's uh, some of those other aspects. So what would, and even the procrastination or getting distracted for some people, what would you say is your experience with how like you look at the strengths and weaknesses of that approach, but also how other people tackle it versus how you do. So I think it really boils down to like for me, I had a strong motivation to work remotely. So I work, I live in Cornwall, Ontario, which um, you know has I have a great quality of life and a great like it's a small city, um, so I'm really connected in my community. I have a, like. I can go pretty much anywhere in town and, and I, everybody knows me, which is nice. That's very um, congenial and friendly. Um, and we live in the river, so we've got a great lifestyle, right? But the downside is there's not a lot of work opportunities. And so when I transitioned to remote work, I was working for a company, but uh, like really hated my job. Like I was commuting um, 45 minutes a day in good weather one way um, I had since I had my dogs, they had to go to doggy daycare. Like it could be an hour each way, right? So two hours in the winter could be more. It was could be really treacherous driving. So for me at, at that time in my life, when I was thinking about transitioning careers, it was like, well, my only options because there aren't any really in terms of my domain in Cornwall would be Montreal or Ottawa. So that's an hour to an hour and a half, you know, a longer commute than I was already doing. So that wasn't feasible. So my motivation was really driven about eliminating the commute, right, and finding a job I liked. So um, the tech space is pretty innovative in that in that arena because they they they're pretty open to remote work arrangements. 
So for me, I always come back. Like you're right, there are elements that work better for some people than others. Like I never, I don't struggle with procrastination because I know the alternative. And the alternative is what I'm gonna show up to an office. Like I'd have to go to Montreal or Ottawa. And I, I just don't wanna do that, right? Like in terms of the gas, the insurance, um, the, the havoc of sitting in rush hour, all of those things are really gonna erode the quality of life. Now I, I wrote a book, which I haven't published, but in that book I wrote a chapter on step one to understanding whether or not you want to pursue a work from home opportunity is to understand the costs associated with your nine to five desk job. And um, I knew that I was spending a ton of money at one, in my old, old job on work stuff. And this is in the country, so it's not like living in the city where you've got parking and you know, super expensive wardrobes and, and whatever. But I calculated my annual cost just to show up to work, and this includes, you know, clothes, hair, nails, um, doggy daycare, gas, um, lunches out, co morning coffee, all of that was $14,000. $14,000, and that's on the low end, right? So if you're thinking about, let's say, someone who makes 60K, that's 25% of your income is actually going to support your employment. And I think in older generations, it seemed normal, like you had to go to a job. But, you know, I think we really have to ask ourselves, like, is 25% of your income a fair trade-off for the benefit of showing up at a job, which you may or may not like? So for me, like it was the commute and those kinds of things were, were really driving me crazy. So I was highly motivated to make it work for me. Now you're right, there are challenges. I struggled with engagement. I struggled with connecting with people. Mm -hmm. So I think for people who are moving into that space, like when I joined Exonify, like I really, I spent, I tried to spend a lot more time in the office to get to know people and build relationships, yeah, relationship right? And, and when you're in the office, I notice you invest a lot of time in building those relationships because if you're here for a week, you might, that's your opportunity really to do that. Totally, and I, I'm an extrovert too, right? So I really, I, I really like that connection piece. Um, the other thing that I did was in the book I talked about monetizing your commute time. So I, I often hear about people who say things like, well, I don't mind commuting because you know, I can read a book or and I mean, I think educational pursuits are great. Like if you're listening to podcasts, you're reading a book, you're filling your time with something meaningful. I'm really talking about like people who are sitting in traffic, you know, like uh, I don't like driving that much. I certainly don't want to spend my time sitting on the highway, um, et cetera. And so I wrote, um, I did one exercise about monetizing your commute time. So for me, it was like I have two hours back in my day from not commuting. So for some people, it might be, gee, I can use that time to go to the gym or spend more time with my kids or I can uh, take up gardening or I can do more community activities. I monetized it. I decided basically to have a side hustle. So I could embed a side hustle. And in my first year, I made an extra $8,000, right? So I'm working from home. I'm doing the side hustle, making extra money. What is your side hustle? Well, back, well I still, yeah. So back then, um, I was working on a project uh, with a safety organization, essentially looking at um, an essential skills um, approach to embedding essential skills within health and safety training. Mm -hmm. This is through a research organization in Toronto. Um, I'm still working on that project, actually. It's been a four-year relationship, so that's really interesting. So I was able to add in that extra income, which I used to travel mm -hmm. in my off time with. So side hustles are huge. I mean, I feel like everyone has a side hustle, but, you know, I think for people to think through the trade-off to say, like, 
do you want an office job or like are you are you living in a geographic region that is prohibitive to have the type of career that you want so for me I'm like do I do I want to live in Montreal do I want to live in Ottawa do I want to deal with all that traffic I like the small city there aren't opportunities so my work around was to work remotely so, so I have this kind of a like based on the context or environment you have it it kind of not it didn't force you into it but it led to that opportunity becoming more attractive well, yeah, and so I, I think of people, um, you know, I have um, the benefit of a low-cost life, right? So I still have a big city, you know, a, a, a good salary that would probably not be likely in my local community, but I have the double benefit of I don't have to pay parking costs, I live, I don't ever have any rush hour, I have no traffic, when I, if I want to have lunch with a friend downtown, I can put a loony in the machine, the loony buys me an hour of time, like good luck doing that in Toronto, you know, like there, there are other benefits, so I save a ton of money, so I actually added, so again, part of the, the book was um, looking at how you can recoup costs, a big cost recoup is through car savings, so if you're a family that has two cars, could you actually get rid of one car? So you're looking at your car payment of 400 bucks, your insurance at 100 bucks, your gas at three, 400 bucks, parking expenses, et cetera. That can easily add up six, seven, eight hundred dollars. That's back in your pocket if you can go from two to one car. So there's like the cost recoup, there's the cost, there's the monetization of commute time if that's something you're interested in, or just having the time back generally to do other things, as well as um, just negating or getting rid of some of the big annoying things that may or may not bug you about commuting. Hopefully that answered your question. That does, that yeah. does. Well, Tracy, thank you very much for, for coming on today. This is great to hear your experience both in terms of your journey into meditation and also in terms of working remotely, which is some, two things that a lot of people, millennials and non-millennials are considering a lot these days. So thank you very much. Thank you. Great to have, great to be here.